So good morning. I do want to invite you at this time, this portion of our worship service, I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to be turning to the book of Jude in the New Testament. It's all the way towards the end, right before the book of Revelation. If you've been here recently, you know that this is number three in a set of four studies to the book of Jude. As you're turning to the book of Jude, before we read the passage this morning, I want to share with you a little bit and uh, really kind of pat myself on the back here and tell you that your assistant pastor is pretty spontaneous and your assistant pastor is, is fairly romantic at the same time. And these two things go hand in hand every now and then. So I did something this week. I was so proud of myself and I thought I would be spontaneous in surprising my bride, but also, you know, on the romantic side for securing Friday night as a date night. That really doesn't happen a whole lot around our house, so I was going to be clever, go ahead and call the babysitter, have this secured and set up. Wasn't even going to tell her about it. I, I was feeling really good about this. And uh, so I knew that she and I both really have enjoyed the new Batman movies that have been out. And I know you, you may see where this is going. It's already been mentioned in Sunday school and through Christmas prayer, but this morning... And it's really neat to kind of see through God's providence, even as we're going to see today, just the comfort the Lord brings to us is when I was even approaching this passage this week, I really wrestled with, with really where to go with what the Lord was laying on my heart so that I could try to express to you what God's Word was, was going to teach us today. Well, we, we've always enjoyed those new movies, the ones with Christian Bale, and so I knew that Friday night was the premiere night of The Dark Knight Rises. Now, I know there were some midnight showings that, that's, you know, you go at midnight and you get out, I guess, at 2 or 2.30 in the morning. Not something that Mary Margaret and I are going to be doing, though, at this stage in our life. Well, I was really excited about it. I was going to surprise her, just spring it on her. And then Thursday comes around and she tells me that we have company coming in town. And they're going to be staying with us from Thursday to Saturday. Well, I'm admitting to you, as spontaneous and as romantic as I can be sometimes, my immediate response to that was really a little irritability, a little irritated, a little frustrated and all that because of the disappointment that I had out of wanting to surprise her and wanting her to be proud of me for doing that and surprising her. But I sure didn't think that I was going to get up Friday morning and I was going to go into the office and when I hit my little internet browser, my front page, my, the first page that loads is Fox News. And I had no idea that this is what I was going to read first thing Friday morning. The headline read, A gunman wearing a gas mask set off an unknown gas and fired into a crowded movie theater at a midnight opening of the Batman movie, The Dark Knight Rises, killing at least 12 people and injuring at least 50 others. Now this took place, as many of you know, in Aurora, Colorado. Well, I quickly got on Google Maps, and I said, where is Aurora, Colorado? I want to tell you, Aurora, Colorado is over 1,300 miles away from Birmingham, Alabama. Yet, when I was sitting there at my desk throughout the day, and I was thinking about how I wanted us to be going to that movie. I wanted to be so excited about going to the premiere of that movie, surprising her. After reading that headline, I really was kind of relieved that I didn't have a babysitter lined up. I was really kind of relieved that we weren't going to be walking into that movie theater going to see that movie. I couldn't help it. That's just what I kept thinking was really one of just, I'm glad I'm not in that position right now. Because I think my, my fear would want to take over, my worry would want to take over, and I don't know how comfortable I would have been showing up to go see that movie. 
Well, I ended up uh, calling Hunter Twitty, who many of you know is our, does our youth here, he's a youth director, and I called Hunter. And we were talking about this, and he actually shared with me, I share all this with permission, by the way, and he shared with me that he was not thrilled by any stretch of the imagination that his bride-to-be, his fiance, was on a girls' night out, and they were going to see the movie. And, um, and I, he said, Hunter's words to me were, I think it's some copycat. I think it's some guy out there that thinks it's going to be cute to do the same thing, to make a headline. This is an easy way for somebody to make the news. And I started thinking about, you know, somebody playing a joke, throwing some, you know, some firecrackers in there, you know, at the start, just to rattle people, just to mess with people. You know, I immediately started thinking, Hunter started thinking of the evil that's in this world. My default setting was to think about those things that give me fear. I started thinking about those things that give me worry. But I want us, what I want us to focus on and see this morning, if you've looked at the title in the bulletin, we're going to be looking at the purpose of the return of Christ. Now you may read that, you may have seen that title and, and know that we could go so many directions with this. But I want us to see this morning, my default setting was to think about the fear that's around me, the worry that hits me, instead of the hope that I have through the faithfulness of God. And what I want us to see this morning is through the return of Christ, we're going to see that God has already, but we're in waiting. We wait anxiously. We wait with anticipation. But we are waiting for the reversal and the reconciliation that God will bring upon His creation. I want us to see that from our passage today. Hunter and I, the two of us, realized this. We started talking. We said, you know, God has not intended for us to feel this way. He's not intended for us to be fearful, but rather to trust in Him. Well, we started talking about different things. You know, sometimes we default back to 9-11. You know, the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers coming down. Uh, you probably remember exactly where you were when that happened, when you heard the news. And you probably remember the next time you flew. Maybe the next flight that you got on. Or maybe even over 10 years now, later, every time you fly, maybe you can't help but get on a plane and think about that evil could take over that plane and end your life. Well, we're talking on the phone, Hunter and I, and he says, Harrison, I'm sorry. He said, hold on. Liz has called me. This is the third time that she's called since we've been talking. So he beeps over, and he's there for about three minutes, and he Hey, you still there? I said, did they cancel the movie? He said, she got scared. She walked out. And she can't sit through the movie. So she's called me to come get her and pick her up. And I mean, Hunter and I just like, there you go. There it is. And so our passage this morning, I want us to keep this in mind. Our, packet, our passage this morning, it really, when I started thinking about that, it really spoke directly to my heart. It convicted me. It exposed me in my default setting of maybe trusting in myself, of not trusting in the Lord and His faithfulness to me. It really wasn't until Friday night and really Saturday morning that the Lord convinced me of what I wanted to say because I was thinking, okay, here it is the third week. I want to come up with something new. I don't want the people to have to listen to me talk about the same thing again. I had a fear that I was going to preach the same sermon again. I even shared this with Chris. I didn't want you to have to hear about more of the ungodly. Well, unfortunately, maybe for you, God's Word this morning continues to deal and talk about the ungodly. So I'm not going to deviate from it either. Last week we looked at God will deal with sin and the ungodly. He will deal with it. 
This week, He will deal with them through the Christ's return and in His judgment. I want us to leave here this morning with a couple understandings. I've, I've kind of already said this, but here it is. This morning, I want us to understand that God has already reversed and rectified His creation. That He has redeemed and rescued us from all the ungodliness around us, yet we wait for the culmination and the consummation of His great reversal against evil. That we don't have to be fearful of the world around us. That we don't have to execute our own judgment on people either, as we looked last week. It's not our job to do the work that's reserved for God, but rather to trust faithfully in Him, in His righteous ways. And I want us to take away today, this morning, that God will remedy what sin has done. The, the havoc that sin wreaks on us and on our lives, that God will remedy that. Now I want to ask you to stand, if you will. I'm going to read from Jude, verses 14, 15, and 16. I ask you to stand out of reverence for God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word this morning. Starting with verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Remain standing and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to Your Word today asking You to speak to our hearts. Well, there are so many distractions in the world around us, so many things that just take our minds off of You. And I pray that right now, that through Your Spirit, in Your presence, God, that You would be focusing our hearts and our minds on the things of You, God, this morning. Would You relieve the pressures that we have in our lives? Would You relieve our fears? Would You relieve our anxieties? that we have about the world around us. And through Your Word, would You encourage us, would You motivate us to come to You, to come to the foot of the cross, to lay our burdens, to find our rest in You. But God, You tell us to rest in You even now, knowing that You have made promises to remedy the sin that wreaks havoc in our lives. We pray this all. In the wonderful name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. Before I really get into these verses, I guess I need to make a comment or two about the very first part of verse 14. This was really interesting for me as I started studying this. In verse 14 we read that it was also about these, referring back to the young guys, is about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. And then we, we read there before... Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment and to convict all the ungodly. If you have a study Bible maybe that you're reading from this morning or one that you have during the week, it may go into more detail about this. But in a lot of scholars, they wanted to put the emphasis on this book of Enoch. I don't want to put the emphasis on the book of Enoch. Jude gives us absolutely no evidence that he thinks that the book of Enoch was Scripture. He was not trying to elevate this book or this writing to the, to the level of Scripture. He's rather just using this because it was 
well-known and probably, we can guesstimate, probably a highly respected work, a writing back then that people knew about. It's like us getting up here and just using a story or using a news headline or, or using a book that has been written to further our point so that you can relate to it. He's asking us to relate to a point he wants to make about this prophecy. And here's what I want us to take from this Enoch, seventh from Adam. From a close reading of Genesis 5, all the way back in Genesis 5, we know about Enoch that he walked with God, that he knew God is what we read. And because of Enoch's devotion to God, God chose to spare him death. So he took him beforehand. God took him before he experienced physical death. But here's the point that I want us to see this morning. That was in Genesis 5, right? But what do we know happens in Genesis 6? And then the chapter is coming. So Genesis 5, we get this prophecy from this person of Enoch. Chapter 6, we read about the flood. God brings the flood. Well, the point I want us to take from this is Judas saying this prophecy of the return of Christ and his ushering in of judgment, saying it's nothing new. Said it dates from the furthest of times of history that we have. Seven people removed from Adam, the first human being that there ever was. He's looking at us and saying, hey, this plan of mine that I have, this plan to send my son to die on the cross, this plan of mine for my son to experience hell, literally, and to save us from our sins? He says, this plan, he said, I've always known it. It's from before the beginning of time that he has set up Jesus Christ as our divine judge. And without the wonderful sovereignty of God, we have no hope. That is where we hope, that this is not God's plan B. There never was a plan B. It's all plan A. That's where our hope lies this morning. It's in the sovereignty and the care of God. This morning, I want us to have confidence in His ways and that He is a just God. I've been mentioning this for a couple of weeks, but I want us to see God's justice in a whole new light. And for the next few moments, that's exactly what I want us to do. That there's not a bird that falls to the ground, God tells us, without His permission. So we can have confidence when a man walks in a theater and kills 12 people. Our confidence is still in the Lord. Now they were pronouncing judgment and claiming to do the work of God in Jude's day. He's already talked about that. He says, it's not your job. It's not your time. It's not your job to pronounce judgment on these people, on these evil deeds, on these things that you see going on. He says, that's, that's my job. I'm the divine judge. I'm the just judge. So our hope lies in Him. We faithfully trust in the Lord that this mess all around us, all this ungodliness that we experience, that we are trusting in Him, that He will, as we move down to verse 15, says that He will execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And if we carefully look at verse 15, I want us to see that Jude intends for us to understand the purpose of Christ's return. Now, I get it. I really do. That talking about hell this day and age really doesn't make you very popular. 
teaching and preaching on the doctrine of hell does not make you very popular this day and age. We don't hear much about it. I was studying each week uh, through the book of Jude, and as I've come across a few scholars, many of them have actually said that Jude is, in their respect, Jude is the most neglected book of the Bible. I was kind of taken back from that, and I think I figured out why. I think I know one of the reasons, at least, why Jude is a neglected book of the Bible, because it unashamedly speaks about the return of Christ and the reality, not the possibility, but that it speaks to the reality of a real hell. We're experiencing such a tolerant age, such a time of acceptance, that most people, if they believe in an afterlife, end up believing to some, some extent that we're all pretty much going to go there, except maybe the most evil of people. That's sort of what I believed growing up. I believe that as long as I, I was sharing this with someone last week, as long as I hadn't literally and physically killed somebody, and I watched my language out in public as I got older in front of little kids, I felt that God was, he was okay with me. As long as I hadn't literally and physically done these things, then God was focusing His anger, then God was focusing His wrath on people worse off than me. Well, unfortunately, this is not only unbiblical, but it's crept into the church. That's what Jude is writing to. He's saying this belief, this teaching, it's crept in unnoticed, if you remember. This teaching, it's crept into the church and it's wrapped in all beautiful packages and colors and, and forms of universalism that in the end really doesn't matter because if God is fair, then we're all, we're all going to go right where we want to go because people don't want a God with a hell. We want a loving God, don't we? And a God with a hell can't be a loving God. But in his return, Jesus will show his great glory in revealing his ultimate victory over Satan and the evil that's around us and we'll understand the importance of his nail-scarred hands. We will understand it. The return of Christ is not to determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. I think I want to let myself go there a lot. I know growing up, I thought that God's judgment was we would stand there and we found out if we went to heaven and we found out if we went to hell. But I love Ephesians 1.4. It says, From before the foundations of the world were even laid, He chose us in Him that we should be holy and blameless. So if the purpose is not to determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, then what is the, what's the point? What is the purpose? There's a word in verse 15 that is so important for our understanding of this. And it's really the thrust at what Jude is getting at. In verse 15, he says that when the Lord comes with His perfect amount, His perfect multitude, I love that, His tens of thousands, He's saying, I'm coming and I'm not coming alone and I'm bringing my army with me. It's going to be beautiful. But he says that the Lord comes and He will execute judgment on all two Look at that word. If your translation says to convict all the ungodly. That word right there, to convict, was chosen on purpose. And here's the reason. What that word means is that God will expose. It's more than a rebuking. It's more than what we think of conviction. It is that God will expose 
all the ungodly, all the ungodly deeds, all these things that have happened. But, but here's the thing. They will know what they have done. They who have even committed these crimes, they who have committed these ungodly deeds, they will know exactly what it is that they have done and will be exposed for what they are. We will know that the Lord has reversed and rectified His creation and make things new again. So therefore His verdict will be delivered accordingly. The verdict that He already has in mind that He will hand down, we will understand because of, his, of Him convicting, it will be exposed. There will be no doubt that God is a just judge because we will see it all for what it is. It will be complete understanding of God's ways. So if you're the dad of the 27-year-old who was celebrating his birthday to go to the Thursday night midnight premiere of the Batman movie, if you're that man's dad, then you understand that the evil that is around you, you understand the ungodly things that are going on around those things will be exposed for what they are. God will remedy what sin has done, but it becomes important as we look to God's justice. Now, what does justice look like? Is God a fair God? It's not fair that God would send people to hell, right? And it usually sometimes the question is asked, why do bad things happen to good people? And I want to share with you the best answer I've ever heard. Why do bad things happen to good people? It only happened once, and he volunteered. That's the best answer I've ever heard of that, and I think it is so true. That God will remedy what sin has done. And it's through His justice, knowing that Jesus volunteered on our behalf. Because many of you know, I've talked about this before, uh, I love Tim Keller's treatment of this in The Reason for God. In chapter 5 of The Reason for God, the title of that chapter is, How Can a Loving God Send People to Hell? And his answer is basically, he doesn't send them anywhere, but they get to go exactly where they want. He says, many people think that hell works like this. I love this. God gives us time, but if we don't make the right choices by the end of our lives, He casts our souls into hell for eternity. And as the poor souls, as they fall through space, they cry out for mercy, please, please, and God says, too late. That's what we think about God's decision to send us. That we're crying out for mercy and God says, too late, you had your chance. But that is not at all what God's justice looks like. People are not crying out from hell saying, I'm sorry, let me out. Last week we talked about that some of us, if we're given doctrine and truth, that we see rules, we see obligations, we see our freedom lost. Because we don't want a Christianity with responsibility. Because the gospel gives me freedom to do what I want is what I think as opposed to being free to live for Christ, free to live for Him, not to live for for myself, and we looked at immorality in the Christian life, you remember that those things are not compatible. They are, they're struggling against each other. That the Christian life and immorality do not go together. Those things do not pair up. Flip back with me just a couple pages in your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, I want to read verses 1 through 6. My little children, 
I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Remember last week, Jude was talking about how it is by their fruits that we shall know them. It is by our fruits that we will be exposed. And then in 1 John we read that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jude reveals that Jesus being our propitiation, it means that since Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, that He actually appeased God's wrath, that He actually appeased God's anger and brings me into reconciliation with my Father. But remember, I shared with you earlier what I thought growing up. That if I literally hadn't physically killed somebody and I watched my language out there in front of people, then God had to be happy with me. He was focusing His anger. He was focusing His time, His wrath on people that were worse off than me. I didn't know the gospel at all. It's not about me finding someone to compare to that's worse off than me that God's going to get. God focused His wrath and His anger on His own perfect Son. That's the Gospel. That's our joy. That is our satisfaction. That's our encouragement. That is where our heart should lie this morning. That's where our hope should lie this morning. In the return of our Savior. To see that God is not focusing His wrath and His anger on us because He chose to focus it on His own perfect Son. I mean, that is the most beautiful news you can ever be told. We should be shouting it from our rooftops. That is where our hope lies this morning. But what we say is, God, I'd rather have all this stuff I'd rather live for all this stuff around me, what I think will make me happy, rather than your salvation, God. C.S. Lewis, thinking about, is God a fair God? He's writing about, in the end, in the last days, and in the problem of pain and also in the great divorce, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, there's only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, or those who in the end, God says, thy will be done. He says, all that are in hell, they choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. So God in His judgment will expose all this ungodliness for what it is and set it right again. This was not His intention that I be fearful. It was not His intention for me to have worry, for me to have angst, about having two daughters. You don't even have to really use your imagination. You can just read headlines and you can read of the possibilities, things that could happen to our loved ones as they get older. I mean, for me to think about my daughters growing up, getting into their teenage years, 
and to think of the things that evil could do to them. So the purpose of the return of Christ from the book of Judas that the ungodly, they will be shown to be that which is in opposition to God, which He's already defeated and He's already won in Christ. In verse 16, he says, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. We don't have time to unpack that. The, the following our own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. You want to follow your own sinful ways. God will give you exactly over to what you want. He's not our puppet master. He's not holding the wooden things up here with the strings and doing this and dictating every single thing that we do. Yet we know, as I mentioned earlier, not a bird falls to the ground without his permission. So our hope this morning is in the sovereignty of God. He's spoken through his son and said, Your ways are sinful, they are selfish, but mine are selfless. I gave up myself. I gave up my life. My father's wrath and anger that you can't even imagine, Harrison, he said, I poured that out on my own son instead of you. That makes me run to the cross. But out of joy, I don't have to be frightened in front of God, worried about what His judgment is going to do with me, the anger, the wrath of God. It is with a humble confidence, as we read in Hebrews, that I draw near to the throne of grace. My confidence is not in myself. It's in my Savior. And in His revealing of the ungodly sinners and all their deeds, we know that on the last day, I want to read to end, close this morning, I want to read from Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. We know that we shall sing, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you, God, you alone are holy. All nations will come. All nations will worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. I want you to pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we are struck with amazement if we try to comprehend the gospel. Lord, it is amazing the great lengths that you have gone to redeem your creation, to bring us back to you, God. You did not intend for us to be scared, to be frightened of the evil that's around us, but God, you have called us to trust in you that you have already defeated evil on the cross. Satan has been bound. Your gospel is going forth in ways that it hadn't. Lord, you have opened up the gates of your grace and your mercy to be known by all. So we pray that this morning. Lord, if there's any of us here that just do not understand your love for us, but we have a fear of you and what your judgment might bring, would we rest in Jesus this morning, knowing that we have a Savior that's gone before us, that you poured out your wrath, that you poured out your anger on him, not on the worst of people, but on the best person. Would we rest in your arms this morning, knowing that once you touch us, once you grip us, it is with a grip that never loosens. It is with a grip that never lets go. 
Lord, we thank you this morning for your word as you continue to speak to us. Throughout this week, would you remind us of your faithfulness to us, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what we're experiencing. That, Lord, our hope and our trust is in you. Lord, we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.